On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. For people, the year 2000 is not a milestone as much as it is a sign of some sort of impending chaos. The atomic bomb flash could burn you worse than a terrible sunburn, but... If you duck and cover, it will be much safer. Space Agency has received panicked calls about the Mayan apocalypse. The sky vanished, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The day before December 21st, 2012, my father and stepmom loaded their car and drove toward a cabin on Mount Rainier, a place prophesied by some to be safe from the coming Mayan apocalypse. This was not a split-second decision, but one years in the making, a room full of canned food, a handwritten survival guide, and predictions both beautiful and terrifying that marked my teenage years. My dad created his own patchwork spirituality that had end times both blooming and vibrant, hopeful bursts of true peace and a soft, gentle justice, as well as disintegrating and horrific, holes in the ground loaded with rifles, purifying water with the fibers in your clothes. As an idealistic teenager, I could imagine along with my dad a vast wonderland of post-apocalyptic fun. And I saw a world where all the cruel, greedy people were finally gone, where all my best friends and I were free to exist in our truest forms without judgment, roaming the broken cities unafraid, skateboarding through the mall, ransacking the grocery stores, growing food in long rows for all the people we loved. I could find the deluded giddiness of starting over that so many people who believed in the rapture could. It's been said that the apocalypse is as American as apple pie, and for this episode, we'll explore different versions of the end of the world, the hyper-religious, the new age, and the scientific. Our stories about the end tend to involve not only a series of cataclysmic, devastating events, but also the saving of an elect few and the punishing and death of the rest. Each major end times prediction date has come to pass without any mark of trouble, while at the same time, major leaps in technology have opened us up to potential nuclear war and climate disaster, terrifying realities that prove more difficult to face than our fantasies. Come December 21st, 2012, the prophecy had taken a nosedive toward total darkness and I was no longer a believer. I didn't head to the cabin on Mount Rainier. Instead, I found myself alone as midnight rolled in, sitting at the foot of the ocean, the ocean that was supposed to produce thousand-foot waves, all the volcanoes on Earth exploding at once, the world shaking us off like fleas. Despite my own disbelief, there I was, reflecting on the end of the end, which is somehow always a beginning. From his mouth, a sharp sword went out to attack the nations. On the part of the road that covered his thigh was written... King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You certainly can't talk about the end times, about the American apocalypse, about Armageddon and the end of the world without talking about one of the scariest, freakiest, most intimidating epic poems ever written. 
In the last book of the New Testament, a prophet calling himself John details the revelations given to him by a much more metal Jesus Christ than the humble love bug of the previous chapters. I'm going to try my best to give you a very brief summary of the story of the end times that it predicts. The true believers are raptured into heaven, while on earth, horrible tribulations occur for seven years in the forms of war, famine, earthquakes, and plagues of locusts. Angels literally pour out sores from a bowl to cover the worst sinners' bodies, and then they pour blood into all the oceans and rivers, and then they pour the sun's fire all over everyone, then they pour out complete darkness, and then these hundred-pound balls of hail start falling. A third of mankind is killed by God's army. During all this chaos, a false prophet comes into power, often called the Beast 666 or the Antichrist, acting on behalf of Satan to create a one-world government through the promise of peace. Think about the Illuminati. At the Battle of Armageddon, the kings of the earth under this demonic leadership wage war on the forces of God and Jesus. When Jesus finally banishes the devil to this hole in the ground, it begins this thousand-year millennium of peace on earth. And the Christians that were able to repent during the tribulations, along with the original raptured bunch, get to live on streets of gold with gates of pearl and walls of jasper and a river of life flowing directly from God. America's first best-selling book, The Day of Doom by Puritan preacher Michael Wigglesworth, was a 1662 epic poem that detailed the events of Revelations in a precious rhyme scheme reminiscent of Dr. Seuss. For day and night, in their despite, their torments smoke ascendeth. Their pain and grief have no relief, their anguish never endeth. There they must lie and never die, though dying every day. There must the dying ever lie and not consume away. The happy ending of the book shows all the sinners damned, while the elect and the saints and the angels all celebrate their damnation and their own new perfect world in God's love, an ending that generations of Puritans assumed would come to pass in their lifetime. One afternoon in 1780, the broad sky darkened over New England, leading the masses, including some politicians, to assume that Judgment Day was nigh. Beginning at noon, it was so dark outside that they needed candles, and as roosters crowed and frogs croaked at 2 p.m., the moon appeared blood red through the darkness. Historians now believe that forest fires caused thick smoke, and that combined with thick fog and overcast skies to produce the effect. But that event was a lasting reminder of the feeling of the end of the world, one that would inform our first end times prediction 60 years later. While studying the book of Daniel in the mid-1800s, Baptist preacher William Miller came up with the idea, using biblical math, that the end of the world could be predicted for 1843 or 1844. This was at a time called the Second Great Awakening, a resurgence of evangelicalism that invigorated the nation with a younger, ecstatic, emotional spirit with the goal of curing the evils of America before the return of Jesus Christ. A horrifying bright comet happened to streak across the sky in 1843, gaining Miller thousands of followers, and together they came up with the official date of April 23, 1843. When the date approached and the crowds began to gather, newspapers blasted the Millerites, claiming that their fear-mongering could lead to a total social and economic collapse if farmers chose not to plant crops for the following spring or if workers stopped producing goods for the nation, and editorials blamed them for cases of local insanity and suicide. 
As the diehard supporters donned what they called ascension robes, they waited, staring up as night fell, and in the big black sky, nothing happened. Miller shooed reporters away, quickly explaining that his calculations must have been off, and then soon presented the new date of March 21st. For that event, the group bought a giant tent to hold all the followers, and again popped on their special robes. Yet again, nothing happened. One more date was predicted, October 22nd, which, of course, came and went with no apocalypse. One Millerite was quoted as saying, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I had never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawn. The period that followed became known to Christians as the Great Disappointment. As the Industrial Revolution buzzed in the American blood, as it rumbled deafeningly and smoked the skyline out, the feeling that the end was near became more and more believable, and not just on a spiritual level. Environmental concerns began popping up for the first time as utopian back-to-the-land movements became safe havens from new technology. These new communes saw themselves similarly to those counting down to the rapture, waiting out a terrifying collapse in order to build a better world after the fact. But with the massive deaths of two world wars and a devastating market crash, America started to get intimate with a new kind of apocalypse, a new kind of death, one that would change our relationship to our own future forever, or lack thereof. We knew the world would not be the same. Two people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that. When physicist Robert Oppenheimer, one of the inventors of the nuclear bomb, made that famous comment in 1945 after watching the first tests in the deserts of New Mexico, it wasn't the only time he referred to his invention in spiritual terms. Quote, In some sort of crude sense, which no vulgarity, no humor, no overstatements can quite extinguish, the physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. The descriptions by scientists and generals of the blast in New Mexico often compared it to doomsday or to the second coming of Christ, with one general calling attention to, quote, the strong, sustained, awesome roar which warned of doomsday and made us feel that we puny things were blasphemous to dare tamper with the forces here thereto reserved to the Almighty. Only one month after that test, United States pilots flew over Hiroshima and then Nagasaki, dropping nuclear bombs on both Japanese cities, with the total deaths being somewhere between 129,000 and 226,000 people, almost all of them being civilians. The unimaginable events of World War II were capped off suddenly by the only use to this day of nuclear weapons, and the world at large was struck for the first time with an image of complete annihilation, a mushroom cloud representing a new kind of horrifying death, a new kind of total power that lived in what Americans imagined was a single red button, not unlike the push-button technology that had recently been introduced into the kitchens and living rooms of middle-class homes. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle 
was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked and covered. Ducked and covered. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. The satirical film Dr. Strangelove's second title, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, was a perfect description of the strange and detached way that America dealt with this potential of total annihilation. Dummies were used to test the effects of nuclear fallout in the deserts of New Mexico, in fake suburbs made by the U.S. government, in brand-name family fashions that doubled as advertisements, staring out from the glossy pages of magazines. Bert the Turtle became the lovable mascot for nuclear survival, and children in classrooms all over the nation learned about how to duck and cover. Atomic candies were sold with a mushroom cloud cartoon on the wrapper, Bartenders mixed atomic cocktails, department stores had atomic sales, and the atomic bomb dancers headlined burlesque shows. As word got out that ducking and covering would do absolutely nothing to save a person from a nuclear bomb, hucksters saw an opportunity to sell their new wares to a nervous public. By the early 1960s, the middle class was caught up in what turned into a kind of fashionable capitalist panic, and bomb shelters were one of the hottest selling items, modeled in the middle of malls, department stores, and trade shows. Home economics classes taught girls how to furnish bomb shelters. The Eisenhower Federal Civil Defense Administration created a campaign called Grandma's Pantry that encouraged every home to have at least a week's worth of supplies, of food and water, in case of a sudden attack. Grocery stores and malls set up displays for Grandma's Pantry, featuring popular products at the time like Tang, cornflakes, and Campbell's Soup. Life magazine even ran a story on a newlywed couple who spent their honeymoon in a steel and concrete bunker 12 feet underground. Fallout can be fun, the article said. In reality, it was only the kids who seemed able to feel the true fear of nuclear war. They were not ignorant to the fact that New York City had spent $150,000 on 2.5 million metal dog tags for children to wear so that their bodies could be identified after a nuclear blast. Or that schools in Indiana and Utah had begun tattooing children's blood types under their armpits and on their hips. Or that Boy Scouts had begun mapping abandoned mines and caves that could serve as shelter from fallout. Only a handful of scientists and psychologists ventured to explore the effects of nuclear fear on school-aged children. Children who expressed fears like, all the people will die and the world will blow up. Researchers were shocked at the detailed descriptions of fallout that the children were able to predict. One psychologist noticed that they were able to describe, quote, the nightmarish horrors with such vividness, it was as if they had seen footage of Hiroshima. Very little was done to combat these psychological effects, and these children of the baby boom grew up with a new, general sense of dread and apprehension about the future, one that each generation to come has continued to inherit. Some sociologists call this a radical futurelessness, the time in which modern humans no longer trusted that there was any real future at all. By 1970, the hippies had tried mightily to envision a new kind of future, but soon found many of their own down and out in the overcrowded Haight-Ashbury, strung out and homeless, disillusioned with the modern world. Slowly, a new brand of hippie emerged, one skirting drugs and sex to focus on a kind of transcendental Christianity. Known as Jesus people, or eventually Jesus freaks, 
They believed in simple, minimalist living, creating communes, avoiding the corrupt church establishment, and seeking an ecstatic personal relationship with God, while opening shelters, coffee shops, and other locations to seek new converts. Mass ocean baptisms occurred while long-haired folk bands played Christian hymns, while the Jesus people focused on the more hippie qualities of Jesus, like caring for the poor, hanging out on the margins with the outcasts, and most of all, feeling the love. Their crowning text, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, inspired the first serious shivers of fear in their smiling, dopey movement. But it also helped deliver those hippies eventually into the scaremongering arms of the growing fundamentalist right. The biggest question I think that people are asking today is how will we know that we're in the end times? How will we know that we're in the days that lead to the coming of the Messiah and to the great holocaust that's to precede it? DNA, pollution, famine, nuclear war. Man seems almost indifferent to the dangers ahead. Written by mustached preacher Hal Lindsey, the book claimed that the drug use of the 1960s had opened up the door for Satan to exert a greater degree of control over America and the world at large. Just like the apocalyptic Day of Doom poem in the 1600s, the late great planet Earth became an American bestseller at 35 million copies, the highest-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. Lindsay, a preacher out of California, took biblical prophecy and tied it to current events, using a non-academic tone full of 70s slang, which helped tremendously in its appeal to the Jesus people and other younger evangelicals. He was one of the first to reimagine the symbolism of revelations to have parallels with the technology of the modern world, Imagining the locusts as military helicopters, the rain of fire as nuclear bombs, he talked about pollution and fallout creating that total darkness, and imagined the sores as being terrible sunburns from the loss of the ozone layer, the images of horses with heads of lions projecting smoke and fire from their mouths as some kind of ballistic missile launcher, all these new technologies, signs of the Antichrist. The capture of Jerusalem by the Israeli army in 1967 proved to Lindsay that Christ's second coming was imminent, as prophecy throughout the Bible tells of Jews returning to this homeland, a feeling still felt by pro-Israel evangelicals looking to induce the rapture today. He made claims like, quote, This period will make the regimes of Hitler, Mao, and Stalin look like Girl Scouts weaving a daisy chain by comparison and that Adolf Hitler was but a choir boy when compared to the dictator that will take over the world during the tribulation. It was followed up by a 1979 film narrated strangely by Orson Welles, which ran in theaters all over the country and was played on HBO, and it also included some very nice early satanic panic propaganda about the rising of the occult and witchcraft practices. In fact, Lindsay would go on to be one of the leading figures in the movements around Satanism and satanic ritual abuse throughout the 1980s. He predicted that the end of the world would come in 1988, the year that I was born. Following the success of the late great planet Earth, Tim LaHaye, who you might remember as helping popularize the gay agenda conspiracy theory, wrote a fictionalized version of the Book of Revelation in the form of grocery store paperbacks called the Left Behind series, which quickly became one of the best-selling American book series of all time. Starting out on an airplane, certain passengers seem to have disappeared, leaving their clothes and airplane meals behind. The series chronicles the subsequent discovery that the rapture has occurred in the mid-90s and is followed by seven years of tribulation and earthly torture for characters like Chloe, a free-thinking Stanford student. 
The remnant, made up of left-behind Christians with a strong love of the Second Amendment, battles violently with those found with the mark of the beast on their foreheads. There are countless testimonials from both the late Great Planet Earth and the Left Behind series, claiming that these stories of coming apocalypse scared them straight to Jesus. With the end of the Cold War in the early 90s, the rise of survivalist militia movements, as well as Antichrist Illuminati conspiracy theories coming from televangelists like Pat Robertson, helped cement this new mass culture of biblical apocalyptic fear, and married it to a distrust of the powers of government, as well as this new, unimaginable frontier of technology known as the World Wide Web. Get ready, Warren. The book's computer failures will shut down electric utilities, prison gates will swing open at midnight, terrorist attacks will occur in larger cities, and wild dog packs will roam the streets. And many of these books recommend stockpiling weapons as a precaution. I just wanted to be prepared in case anything happens for Y2K. Anxieties were certainly rising in this time of dial-up internet and instant messaging of what was becoming a total dependence on possibly fickle technology. The news began reporting on this potential techno-tastrophe because shortcuts in computer programming had shortened all the years to just two digits. So the fear was that computers would read the date as 1900 instead of 2000, leading to unknown and unpredictable results. The news interviewed so-called experts who estimated that 40% of the country would lose power, that there was a 40% risk of total global recession, that planes would fall out of the sky, hospital patients' life support would fail, telephone and water systems would be wiped out, savings accounts and pensions would disappear, communication breakdowns would mean that food and medicine could not be delivered or sold, causing riots and eventually societal collapse, and worst of all, the nukes might all rise from their silos to detonate on their own. The panic was sanctioned by Bill Clinton as he made speeches on the need for serious preparation, with $100 billion total dollars spent throughout the nation to hire coders to correct the data issue, some who were demanding million-dollar salaries. As the last seconds ticked away, America drunkenly braced for the worst, partied like it was the end of the world, and, yet again, nothing happened. At its core, Y2K was the first real apocalyptic date not based in religion or spirituality, which helped it appeal to perhaps the biggest audience of any end-of-the-world panic to this day. Y2K was a kind of blank template that extremists could fill in. Now famous conspiracy theorist Alex Jones got his start at 25, ranting about the New World Order that would take over after Y2K caused widespread panic. New Agers saw it as the beginning of the New Age of Aquarius, a millennium of astrological peace. It was interpreted by Jerry Falwell and other fundamentalists to be the end times itself. I believe that Y2K may be God's instrument to shake this nation, humble this nation, awaken this nation, and from this nation, start a revival that spreads the face of the earth before the rapture of the church. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And now, back to the show. Come 2011, evangelical family radio broadcaster Harold Camping would start a campaign for his own apocalyptic prediction in William Miller's tradition. May 21st was the predicted date of Judgment Day, and then five months later, the rapture would lift only 3% of the population into the sky. He promised earthquakes beginning at 6 p.m. that would trigger tsunamis so huge that they would reach inland as far as Colorado. Family Radio spent over $100 million on the campaign, buying billboards all over the world and printing millions of pamphlets. They launched Project Caravan, which deployed five RVs painted with a Judgment Day announcement on their sides that traveled the U.S. handing out religious tracts. Camping's most dedicated followers began selling their homes, quitting their jobs, and using their children's college funds and their life savings to help publicize his campaign. The day before, the end of the world, May 21st, was the second most Googled item. The news reported a new company called Eternal Earthbound Pets that claimed to be a network of atheists willing to care for the pets of raptured adults for a one-time payment of $135. 
I happened to be traveling across the country with just a backpack and my friend Josephine during the Herald camping craze, and we reached the streets of San Francisco just as May 21st hit. We sat at Dolores Park with a sea of fashionable hipsters sucking on weed chocolates and drinking craft beer, ironically counting down to Herald Camping's predicted hour. When 6 p.m. hit, there was a slow, rising, rumbling cheer, a half-assed celebration that the world hadn't ended. But I felt this underlying sense that our victory was going to be short-lived. The end, in many ways, still felt very near. That night, some part of me still worried, some part of me still wondered at the state of the earth, of mankind, as well as all the invisible things, the spiritual world I still didn't understand, and, most of all, the unknowns of the next year, of December 21st, 2012, the date I'd been counting down to since I was an adolescent. For me, it all began with Ronald Reagan. Yeah? I thought that during that time period, I thought that he was literally going to bring about the end of the world. Because you thought he was the Antichrist. I remember this. Yeah, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. 666, yes, the B666. So it was kind of always in my consciousness from the 80s forward, and it's really the only uh, end-of-the-world story that I remotely believed in. I was thinking that it was Armageddon. And that so, Armageddon was coming. And you felt it on a, on a spiritual level as well. Oh, I totally felt it on a spiritual level. But that's what the Mayans called for was a major shift. In, well, people debated it, whether it was going to be an actual end of the world or whether it was going to be going into the new millennium where the earth would become more peaceful. I mean, there were so many different scenarios of what could happen, an economic collapse, nuclear war, any number of scenarios. And, and not just for 2012, but, I mean, it can happen any time society is so fragile but we packed up our truck on that weekend with all the food that we already had stored and we we uh brought all of my guns and ammunition and cigarettes and everything you'd think you'd try to think that you would need in an end of the world scenario when you weren't when resources weren't accessible I mean, you both probably grew up doing things like duck and cover drills, did you? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. When we were in grade school, in kindergarten, they'd have the big air raid sirens go off about once a week, and we'd all go and hide in uh, these big concrete tunnels that they had around the that they put around the school just for that reason. In case there was a nuclear war, we could all jump into those those big pipes. So yeah, I guess that's probably my earliest memories of I was gonna say, maybe the that's end of your, the world. That's your root. Yeah, yeah, that's my root. I mean, how could how could people grow up in that in that situation and not have those feelings? You know, I, I feel like. <gasps> Whoa! What does it say? Emergency alert! Amber wow, alert. that's freaky. I was thinking that was gonna be the nuclear. Uh, that was yeah, the nuclear. In 1990, something called the Hotline of Doom was started by a group called the Society for Secular Armageddonism. And by calling 415-673-DOOM, a message would play for the 10,000 total callers, a message that came at a time of rising awareness of something called global warming. It went a little something like this. We believe the apocalypse is at hand, and our reasons for this belief are overwhelming. Chemical and biological weapons, nuclear proliferation, deforestation, the greenhouse effect, 
ozone depletion, acid rain, the poisoning of our air and water. These aren't just conversational topics for cocktail parties. They're grade A, unadulterated harbingers of destruction. And they're all proof that we don't need God to end it for us. The coming end will be a strictly do-it-yourself apocalypse. The wildfires that have roared through the West Coast the last two summers have left our skies as mysterious as New England's dark day in 1780, a blood-red moon burning in the ashy sky as hurricanes and earthquakes and floods have rocked the world at higher and higher rates. As Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un traded flagrant nuclear threats in early 2018, an accidental text was sent to all of Hawaii as part of an emergency broadcasting system that said in all caps, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill, leading to widespread panic for 38 minutes until a follow-up text clarified the mistake. We all carry a traumatic past in the ongoing fear of nuclear war, and quite literally since the 1940s, all of us carry radioactive residue in our bodies from nuclear testing. We also carry in our bodies the potential for two different types of human future, one in which we act quickly to deal with climate change, and another in which we don't. The New York Magazine article called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells that came out in 2017 shocked the nation with its descriptions of a very Revelations-esque future, its first section aptly titled Doomsday. He details the future that America and the world at large can logically expect if we don't take serious and widespread action to combat the human elements of climate change. In the book of Revelation, when the angels pour out the sun over the people, it can remind one of the rising temperatures that will create millions, possibly even billions, of climate refugees fleeing from the unlivable heat. Prophesized famines could be coming in the form of declining crops, as the heat causes a decrease in yield and the population continues to grow, and droughts make previously arid land into desert. Plagues in the form of diseases cryogenically frozen in Arctic ice could be reborn as that ice melts, diseases like smallpox and the bubonic plague that are still alive in Siberian ice. It also warns that for every half degree of warming, societies will see between a 10 and 20 percent increase in the likelihood of armed conflict. The oceans are turning acidic, soaking up as much of the carbon as we produce, killing all the sea life, the oceans and the rivers running red, the looming fear of stars falling from the sky in the forms of nuclear blasts. The effects will be much worse for developing nations, but America is in no way exempt from what is coming. For fear of being deemed alarmists, of being accused of the same kind of hysteria they might be accused of on this very podcast, David Wallace Wells believes that scientists do not actually communicate their true feelings about the frightening data they have. In an interview about his new book-length version of The Uninhabitable Earth, he says, quote, It didn't seem plausible to me that there was more risk at scaring people too much than there was at not scaring them enough. David truly believes that our fear, our American hysteria, has the potential to mobilize us into much-needed action. We've seen how, from stranger danger to poison products, to pedophile Satanists, to homosexuality, to drugs, all of these overblown fears have led to quick and sweeping legislation, certainly not usually for the best. On one hand, something called psychic numbing can reduce the appropriate emotional response to serious threats, leading us to fear time and time again all these fake apocalypses. What if instead we panicked, and we panicked hard, about the one that science is proving to be more and more real every day? 
What if we got hysterical? In our intensely polarized political climate, there is a bright spot. New polls suggest that over 70% of the nation now believes in climate change. But when Donald Trump was elected president, he pledged to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, the U.N.'s resolution to systematically battle climate change on a global level. The U.S. cannot formally withdraw until 2020, just days after the next presidential election, in case you needed another reason to be inspired to vote. When Oppenheimer quoted the Bhagavad Gita after watching his atomic bomb explode, some believe that a better translation from the original Sanskrit would have said, "I am become time." The destroyer of worlds. The quote refers not to a sudden and dramatic end, but to a degrading through the passage of time. It isn't a sudden catastrophe we have to look out for, but the ones that sneak up on us. At the end of the Puritan Day of Doom bestseller is written the rhyme: "You had a season. What was your reason? Such precious hours to waste. What could you find? What could you mind that was of greater haste?" What if we stopped accepting this biblical fate that tells us we have no control, that all we can do is wait for the destruction ahead and hope we are one of the chosen? A big part of our culture of American doomsday is evident in the stories we tell about who survives and who doesn't. Because the fact that the end almost always seems to mean that we get to begin again, that new beginning almost always excludes those we consider our other. Life in 1620s England was filled with disasters like plagues, recessions, bad crops, and intensifying battles of religion. The Puritans, already seeing themselves as a holy elect, turned their attention to a place that promised a new beginning, a chance to start over, essentially a new earth. Immediately facing a new other, their diseases like smallpox and hepatitis caused mass deaths of local indigenous people, which they saw as God clearing the way for their city on a hill, much like what they read about in the last book of the Bible. On the other side, in the late 1800s, a spiritual leader of the Northern Paiute people named Wovoka had a vision that on the solar eclipse of January 1st, 1889, all the dead Paiute people would be resurrected and the whites would be removed from their land. Of course, depending on who holds the power, these dreams of getting rid of the other play out in vastly different ways. So many moral panics we have studied throughout this season have been about essentially demonizing and then getting rid of that other, of rapturing the elect away from society's deviance. Whether it be through unjust laws that lead to mass imprisonment or deportation, through the systemic silencing of identities through oppression. Through imagined conspiracies that make victims of those who seek to victimize, or the pushing out of the undesirables to the margins of society, our dominant culture has long felt this biblical separation of who is chosen and who is not. Facts that my generation is attempting to face head-on, while also living with a kind of radical futurelessness we inherited from the baby boomers' rational nuclear fear. During that ironic apocalypse of May 2011, I was struck by a deep sense that my millennial generation was coping with the rising threats of climate change with a very dark sense of humor, with the irony that came to define our hipster counterculture. Unlike those in the 50s and 60s, we certainly had not found a way to stop worrying and love, well, anything. The cheer that was let out when the world didn't end in Dolores Park, when no one was lifted to heaven. When no earthquakes tipped over our craft beers and no tsunamis put out our joints, it was a cheer that felt truly cheerless—a simple "I told you so." 
But deep down, we all knew that in some sense we had not escaped the apocalypse, that in our lifetime we would likely have to face a series of unfolding disasters, of massive and terrifying environmental changes all over the world. The next year, as Christmas approached, I ignored calls to the cabin on Mount Rainier, not really seeing the point of surviving in what I now imagine more accurately as a militia war for scarce resources. Instead, I sat at the foot of the ocean by myself, the freezing air aching in my ears, the terrifying and wonderful infinitude of black sky and stars, the moon also aching above me. If the end was coming, I thought I would sit quietly and feel bravery, feel the love in my own heart for this world, for even this tangled mess of America, trying to reach out like the fundamentalists to something as strong as God, to reach out like the New Agers to something as all-encompassing as energy, something that proved that there was meaning behind all this maddening, heartbreaking chaos. At the close of this season of American hysteria, I'm left again feeling lost at the foot of the same ocean, not sure what any of this really means. Because, at the very heart of everything, I still love this world. I still want to hope that we're moving towards something better, that we're working towards something better, despite everything that has come before and everything we are engulfed in now. I'm reminded now of dear Rainer Maria Rilke, who in letters to a young poet wrote about how our stories and traditions and assumptions are sealed and then passed on through the generations like a letter unopened, a letter unexamined. It's only in opening that letter that we can start to understand how we got here, how this very moment we are all standing in was formed, how everything has layered over time to produce the conditions of our lives and the lives of all the other vastly different kinds of people that make up this country. In knowing and understanding our history, in facing our past honestly and critically, we might be able to begin to have a little more control over our present and future. We might be able to steer this ship with a little more consciousness. We might be able to make new and different choices. I hope that this podcast has done its small part to help you open that letter for yourself. I want to finish out with this thought of Rilke's, who, like so many poets before him, believed in the challenging, beautiful, vital practice of love that in so many ways is the opposite of the damaging, unconscious fear that American hysteria has tried to address. The demands that the difficult work of love places upon our development are larger than life, and we as beginners are not up to them. But if we endure and assume this love as a burdensome task and as an apprenticeship, rather than lose ourselves in all those facile and frivolous games behind which men have hidden from the utmost seriousness of their existence, then it might be possible for those who come after us to sense a little progress and relief. That would already be much. This was the season finale of American Hysteria. Thank you so much for listening and thinking along with me and the team. The support from you has really been incredible. We're taking a little break before season two, but it won't be very long. And I promise to drop in with little updates here and there about the strange state of America. Also, in the meantime, come enjoy some memes with us on social media. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by the very excitable me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by the patient and thoughtful Derek Smith, 
produced and edited by the amazing Rod Rodriguez of Clear Camo Studios, with voice acting from the hilarious Will Rogers, and help from brilliant research assistant Riley Smith. I promise to bring you plenty more hysteria. I just gotta sleep for a while. Until then, please take care of your hearts and yourselves, and thanks again so much for listening.